both Moses and Elijah give a message about the past and the future. And we will see that these two truths about the past and the future that are taught in Malachi are also echoed in a number of New Testament passages. Welcome to Search the Scriptures, the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, South Carolina. Last week, we looked at the incredible rapture of Elijah the prophet, part of our biographical series on this amazing prophet. Normally, we might think that the end of the study, but the Bible tells us that Elijah will return. And we see in the New Testament one sighting of him already. Let's join Dr. Brogy as we present the final message in our series on Elijah and look at Elijah's return. Would you take your Bibles this morning, please, and turn to the book of Malachi, chapter 4. Malachi 4. It's easy to find because it's the very last book, the last page of the Old Testament. It's a short little gem of a prophecy inspired by God the Holy Spirit through the human offer, Malachi. And Malachi was a prophet who prepared his people for the first coming of the Messiah. But he's also a prophet who's preparing the people, Jew and Gentile alike, who are alive today for the second coming of the Messiah. Now, if you're joining us, we've been in a series on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. Elijah was a man who lived in very, very difficult times, much like our own. And there are many great lessons that we can learn from studying his life. Now, this is the 10th of 10 messages in this series. And if you've not been with us, you can go to searchthescriptures.org at the website, or you can download the phone app, and you can listen to all the messages. Now, I know if you were here last time, you know that I preached on Elijah's departure, where he was taken up into heaven in a whirlwind. And for many of you, you thought, well, that's the end of the series. But as you can see, it's not the end. Today, we're speaking about Elijah's return. And both the Old and the New Testament speak that Elijah the prophet is coming again. And I'm going to show you a number of passages today that teach that. We'll use Malachi chapter 4 as kind of our base camp, and we'll uh, go out from there. But for some 2,000 years, the body of Christ has expected the return of Elijah. Even Jewish people believe Elijah is coming again. Every Passover, the first night of Passover, they have a Seder meal. There's always one empty spot, one plate, and one cup that's filled in honor of Elijah. Why? Because they believe Elijah is going to come again to announce Messiah's return. Now, for, them, for us, it's a return. For them, it's the first coming. But they're going to have their eyes open. But what they do and what they teach in reference to Elijah is right on, because that's precisely what the Bible says. And so, I hope this morning you will see that. I hope you have found it Malachi chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, come to one of our Meet the Pastors. You really need one. You'll get so much more out of any sermon with a paper copy. Yes, this is actually a Bible. I know we have these electronic jobbers, but they're not the same in terms of helping you to find your way around Holy Scripture. Malachi chapter 4. We're going to focus just on verses 4 through 6 this morning, but to give you a flow of the chapter and where he's been, I want to begin reading in verse Verse 1. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. 
But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children, and the hearts of the children to their fathers, so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. Now, may I tell you, we are living in a dark day in human history. It's a dark hour domestically, internationally, spiritually, morally. Unless you think that this is just the 1960s replaying themselves, the fact is is that the climate in America has radically changed in 60 years. For instance, if you were a young person attending the government schools in 1960, virtually every public school in America began with a prayer, a Bible reading, and in most schools, the Pledge of Allegiance. There was a standard national prayer that was offered to God, asking for his blessing on the school and the teachers and the students and on the nation. Back then, in one sense, we were much more one nation under God, and to some degree, God's name was honored even in the classrooms. In fact, in 1960, the top seven disciplinary problems were, quote, talking, chewing gum, making noises, running in the halls, cutting in line, improper clothing, and not disposing of one's trash. Today in America, God has been thrown out of our schools. And let me tell you what the top seven or eight are. God is out, but assault, robbery, drugs, teen pregnancy, sexually transmitted disease, rape, bombings and murders are all in. We've taken the Ten Commandments off the walls and we've had to put policemen in the halls. And so this morning, there are people who even want to eliminate the police, to defund them, to radically either get rid of them or to limit them in number in a day when lawlessness is growing. That's not even smart. And apart from the violence that we're seeing in our cities across America today, apart from that, Statistical governmental evidence shows that since 1960, violent crime has quadrupled in America. According to the U.S. Census Bureau, in 1960, approximately 200,000 couples lived together unmarried. Today, the number has risen to 17.5 million. TV, for the most part, was relatively wholesome, but now national and cable networks are pumping soft porn into our living rooms. And just last week, Hallmark announced that the LGBTQ storyline will fill their characters and their actors starting this fall. And sadly, 40% of babies born in America are born out of wedlock. I hope you know there are no illegitimate children, just illegitimate parents. Every child has a right to live. And yet, Roe v. Wade... Since 1973, we have aborted 62 million-plus babies. What's happening in America today? We talk about a sexual revolution. Well, we've had a sexual revolution, all right, and it's revolting. And I mean, the statistics are in, the harvest is in, it's multiplying, and we have liberal pastors 
and liberal media and liberal politicians who say that we need to shed these puritanical restraints so that we can find true freedom. They say everything is okay, it's all right, as long as it's between two consenting adults. And so this month in Massachusetts, in one town, Somerville, they legalize polyandry, polygamous marriages. And so our nation has been flooded with books and films and music and talk shows and sitcoms and advertisements and pop stars and internet websites that glorify perversion. In young people, in the middle and high school schools, yes, even in our own county, not to mention the university level, are being taught that promiscuity and the LGBTQIA plus lifestyle is normal and natural. And the Supreme Court as well this month redefined the word sex under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that will have huge ramifications on transgender students playing campus sports. So a guy who says he's a woman can play on a woman's team. A guy who says he's a woman can live with a lady in the residence halls as a roommate. And there will be, I'm sure, lawsuits and huge implications, not only for employers, but for churches. When transgender people come here and they're welcome, we want to win transgender people and homosexual people and heterosexual, immoral people, drunkards, prostitutes, whoever you are, we want to reach you with the good news. But transgender people are going to come here and they're going to want to use some guy, a woman's bathroom. Not on my watch. It won't happen, I promise you. But I have good news for you. There is a new day that is coming. And the prophet Malachi tells us about it in our passage, when the son of righteousness, a metaphor for the S-O-N, when Jesus Messiah will come back and he will rule and reign. Look how chapter one, verse four, chapter four and verse one begins. Malachi says, for behold, the day is coming. Notice verse three, he, God speaks of the day which I am preparing. In verse 5, the prophet Malachi mentions the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. A new day is coming, but before it is initiated, Elijah is coming. That's what we see. In fact, in this portion of Scripture, there are two primary characters, Moses and Elijah, and it's hardly by accident because they appear very, very closely together, not just in this passage, but in other passages. And both Moses and Elijah give a message about the past and the future. And we will see that these two truths about the past and the future that are taught in Malachi are also echoed in a number of New Testament passages. If you want to take down some notes, just two simple points this morning. First, we learn from Malachi that we are to look to the past and remember. We are to look to the past and remember. Again, here in verses 4 through 6, it's hardly by accident that the two primary characters are Moses and Elijah. Moses, the great lawgiver, Elijah, the great preaching prophet to the people of Israel. And I suppose that we should not be totally surprised that these two men are together because they towered above their contemporaries and their colleagues in the day. And both passed into eternity under unusual circumstances. Moses died, and God dug his grave, and it was known only to the Lord God. 
Elijah, before he left this earth, we studied last week, he was brought up into heaven in a whirlwind, presumably into paradise. And both of these men, if you remember, met the Lord Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. And both of these men summarize and sum up the entire Tanakh, or what we call the Old Testament. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. And so a Jew, of course, doesn't refer to his Bible as the Old Testament. They have just one. They call it often the law and the prophets. Or sometimes they refer to their Bible as Moses and Elijah. Jesus himself on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24 spoke of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms as he opened the scripture to those men. Moses is the great lawgiver. Elijah is the great prophet. And of course, these men summarize the whole Bible. Moses wrote the first five books in the Bible called Torah or the law. Jews are a lot smarter than the liberal Protestant and Catholic preachers of our day who say there's multiple authors to Moses. No, there's one author. That's what Jesus affirmed. That's what I believe. There's no such thing as the JEPD theory where there are multiple authors. There's one author. So they refer to the first five books as Moses. Now, they understand they have the same 37 books of the Old Testament, 39 books of the Old Testament that we have. They don't have 39 in number because some books like Kings are brought together in one book. But they have the same books we have. But what is different is the way they order those books. And so from Joshua to Malachi, they call that the prophets. So when you see here on the last page of Holy Scripture in the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, in many ways, they sum up the entire Bible. So here's Malachi, the last prophet and writer of the entire Old Testament. And he concludes his prophecy first by asking us to remember Moses. When God says, remember the law here in verse 4, he wanted that to ring in their ears like the phrase, remember the Alamo would ring in the ear of a Texan. He's saying, remember the law. Don't forget what happened at Horeb. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. Now, the Hebrew word remember is the word zakar. And it doesn't simply mean to call to mind, but it speaks of acting on something. And you see it used that way habitually in Scripture. For instance, when God gave the Decalogue in Exodus chapter 20 and verse 8, and the Ten Commandments, he mentions the Sabbath day when he says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. He's speaking and asking for obedience. Likewise, when God told the Jews to make a tassel and to sew it on the corner of their garments, as the Orthodox people do to this day, in Numbers chapter 15, God said this, it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord so as to do them and not follow after your own heart and your own eyes after which you played the harlot in order that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. So again, this Hebrew word remembrance can't be separated from obedience. And the Lord used it in the same way when he asks us to remember him at his table. When we remember Jesus at the table, there is a, uh, a time of reflection that should cause us to respond in obedience. So when he says, remember the law of Moses, my servant, he's exhorting the people to live in accordance with the law. 
Now notice two here in verse one. Moses is not called the lawgiver. He is not described as a legislator. He's described as a servant. Remember the law of Moses, my servant. That's a great title in which to summarize someone's life. In fact, using similar words, the writer of the Hebrews in Hebrews 3, 5 says, Moses was faithful in his house as a servant. And here, as much as anything, Moses is remembered as God's servant. Why? He's reminding us that he is writing on behalf of God with God's authority. Now listen to the whole verse. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb, for all Israel. Now, it's rather striking that Malachi refers to a specific place, namely Horeb, that in Exodus is called the mountain of God. And the reason he is bringing to mind this place is he wants to bring to their remembrance a specific event. He's taking the nation here at the end of the Bible of their Old Testament all the way back to that time when God met Moses at Mount Horeb, also called in the Bible Mount Sinai, after its physical location there in the desert of Sinai, the place where with thunder and fire God came down on the mountain and met Moses. Moses on Mount Sinai was given the law. He was given the commandments of God. And as God's servant, he took that law and he presented it to the people of Israel. And so we have a formal record of that presentation in the book of Deuteronomy. Listening, listen to the opening words of Deuteronomy chapter 1. These are the words which Moses spoke to all Israel across the Jordan in the wilderness. And then he says in verse 5, across the Jordan in the land of Moab, Moses undertook to expound this law. And that's what pastors are supposed to do. They're not to expound their own thoughts. They are to expound the texts of Scripture. And after God's law is clearly spelled out by Moses through God's servant Moses, he gave a warning at the end of the book. Listen to these words in Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 1. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. But the opposite is also true in Deuteronomy 28, verse 15. But it shall come about if you do not obey the Lord your God to observe to do all his commandments and his statutes, which I charge you today, that these curses will come upon you and overtake you. God promised that if the nation obeyed, he would bless them. Some blessings, even to this day, are conditional in nature, and so God spelled it out. And this covenant that Malachi is reminding the people to obey was not just for the Jew in Moses' day, but for the Jew in every generation. And that's why we read in Deuteronomy chapter 29, not, now, not with you alone am I making this covenant and this oath, but both with those who stand here with us today in the presence of the Lord our God and with those who are not with us here today. And so Malachi is appealing to the people to remember, to obey. And he takes them all the way back to Horeb. And just know that God is not asking them to do the impossible. That's not the kind of God we serve. And so Moses reminds them in Deuteronomy 30, beginning now in verse 11. For this commandment which I command you today is not too difficult for you, nor is it out of reach. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will go up to heaven for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? Nor is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will cross the sea for us to get it for us and make us hear it that we may observe it? 
but the word is very near you in your mouth and in your heart that you may observe it. You know these words from Romans 10. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death in adversity. And of course, if you've read Deuteronomy chapters 28 through 30, then you know that the nation will not listen to this counsel. And as God prophesied, they would fall away and be scattered. Now, God always has his remnant. In every generation, there's always a remnant of people who faithfully follow the Lord. And there was a remnant in Malachi's day who faithfully followed the Lord. So some 400 years later, when the Messiah comes on the scene, on the day of Pentecost, everyone who's converted is Jewish. The church, as it began, was all Jewish because there was a remnant that honored what God had said through prophets like Malachi, and they believed. But overall, he came to his own, and his own received him, not John will write. For the most part, the Jewish people in Christ's day and in our day are in unbelief. And so God did precisely what he warned them and prophesied of. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 28, verse 64. Moreover, the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other end of the earth. He's not talking about the Babylonian captivity. He's speaking of the same thing that Jesus said would happen in the Olivet Discourse, that they would be scattered to the ends of the earth. Then he says in verse 66 of that chapter, so your life shall hang in doubt before you, and you shall be in dread night and day, and shall have no assurance of your life. And that verse in many ways really summarizes the history of the Jewish people. However, God went on to prophesy that a day would come when the nation would respond. Listen to these words from Deuteronomy 30. So it shall be when all of these things have come upon you, the blessing and the curse which I have set before you, and you call them to mind in all the nations where the Lord your God has banished you. And you return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and soul to all that I command you today, you and your sons. Then the Lord your God will restore you from captivity and have compassion on you and will gather you again from all the peoples where the Lord your God has scattered you. If you are outcast at the ends of the earth, from there the Lord your God will gather you. From there he will bring you back and the Lord your God will bring you into the land which your fathers possessed, and you shall possess it. And he will prosper you and multiply you more than your fathers. Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. Moses is prophesying a day when the Jewish people will repent. When God would gather the Jewish people from the ends of the earth, there's over a hundred different languages spoken by the Jewish people in Israel today, though the national language, of course, is Hebrew. God is doing what he said, and Moses, if you've read these chapters, puts us at the end of time, as does Jeremiah, as does Ezekiel. At the end of time, just before Messiah comes, God would gather the Jews from the four corners of the world. We studied this in the Revelation. What we are seeing today is the Jewish miracle where we've gone from approximately 20,000 Jews to over 7 million Jews of the 12 and a half million Jews on the earth. And the prophets are clear that not 100% will come back. We are seeing an amazing thing. This is a frequent theme in the prophets that God will first gather them, then he will regenerate or circumcise their hearts. 
And so the Bible teaches that before and during the great tribulation period, Jews from all over the world will come to Israel. Even those Jewish people in New York, 240,000, since March, have made application to take up full residency in New York. It's not by mistake. This is a work of God. God is reestablishing Israel as a nation, but this is just a foretaste of what's going to happen. And so Moses and Malachi are asking us to remember what God spoke through his servant. Now stay with me. God included the book of Malachi for a reason, and he included these last three verses for a reason, though most commentaries don't even mention them. They skip over them or they just summarize them in a single line, but these are not unimportant. We're going to see in a moment they express much about God's sovereignty and God's faithfulness. God is sovereign in the affairs of Israel, and God is sovereign in the affairs of the nations of this world. We are seeing things that God prophesied happen in our very day. And so God gave the Jewish people an unconditional promise concerning a land that is yet to be fulfilled. And God keeps his promises. Verse 4, remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. And so Malachi starts here in verse 4, asking the people to look to the past and remember. Remember the covenant that God made with Moses there in Horeb. But he doesn't stop there. Second point there on your outline, not only are we to look past, look to the past and remember, but in verses 5 and 6, he underscores, we are to look to the future and watch. Notice carefully verse 5. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, if you remember from the context, verses 1 through 3, Malachi speaks of this judgment that will take place at the end of the tribulation period at the second coming of Christ when Jesus comes to judge the living and the dead. But now he speaks of Elijah coming again before notice the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Now, if you've been with us, we've learned in our study of Daniel and Revelation that the phrase, the day of the Lord, is not in reference to a 24-hour day, but to an extended period of time. And the day of the Lord, it includes the great tribulation period, the second coming, the millennial reign of the Messiah, and it has the characteristics of a biblical day. A biblical day for a Jew starts at sundown and it goes to sundown the next day. And so the day of the Lord starts in the shadows of the great tribulation. And as you move through that seven-year period, it gets darker and darker and darker. And there's an event right in the middle of the seven years, what the prophet Daniel calls the abomination of desolation that Jesus quotes in Matthew 24, 15, that will change a time of trouble into a time of horrible trouble, great and unbelievable trouble as the trumpet and bold judgments unfold. Jesus marking that as a mark of demarcation will then say in Matthew 24, 21, for then, after the Antichrist commits this horrendous crime, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Tomorrow, when we continue our biographical study of the prophet Elijah, we'll see that he will return before the second half of the tribulation. To listen again to today's final message in our series on Elijah, use the Search the Scriptures app for smartphones and tablets, 
or visit us online at searchthescriptures.org. You can also order a CD or DVD by calling 877-787-7478 and requesting program ELI-10. Search the Scriptures is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. Join us again tomorrow as we continue our look at Elijah's return and search the Scriptures.